Ready? Born ready. Welcome back. It's another episode of your favorite political podcast. I'm your host, Saba Long. We are changing it up a little bit. And this was prompted by last week's episode. If you did not listen, go back. We are talking about the migrant crisis. And I had to bring the experts in. Two good friends. We've been involved in an organization called the Truman National Security Project, What they'll tell you a little bit about. But first... Let me introduce Amanda Mattingly. She is the founder and principal of ACM Global Intelligence. That sounds pretty smart to me. And is a former U.S. diplomat in Caracas, Venezuela. And then you've got Chris Purdy, who is the director of Veterans for American Ideals and Outreach at Human Rights First. Welcome to the pod. Thanks. I think this is the first time we've had two guests, by the way. We yeah. usually have a one-on-one. This is the first two times. All right, yeah. great. So we had to change it up for such an important topic. Or we uh, did like two separate at the time. Yes. We didn't have them at the same right, time. Right, right. Because they were going to be too contentious yeah. together. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> so, well, we'll play nice. Yeah, we got along all right. So before we dive in, just give us give our listeners a little bit more background on who you are, what you do, and how you got into the work. And we'll start with the Okay. So thank you, Saba. Keith, thanks for inviting us. We're really happy to be here. Um, so I come to this work. Um, I used to be um, I worked at the US Department of State and the National Security Council. Um, one of my assignments was in Caracas, as you had mentioned, I was working at our U.S. embassy there. And another was working on the Haiti desk. Um, and a lot of what I did was related to um, promoting democracy and trying to help um, various crises in the region. And particularly in the case of Haiti, we were focused on um, on the migrant crisis then and which is continuing now. So I come from this, I come to this um, topic from a foreign policy perspective and what we can do in terms of our diplomatic relations um, to, to address the root causes of migration. So thanks for having me. Excited. Yeah, thanks for having me too. Uh, Chris Purdy. Um, I am uh, an army veteran. I served in Iraq. Uh, I'm also the son of an immigrant uh, who was, um, uh, his family was, my, my, my father's family is from Belfast, Northern Ireland. There was a conflict there which caused them to leave. Not many people understand that, um, you know, conflict displacement happens all over the world, um, especially uh, in um well, in formerly Northern Ireland. Um, but I, I come to this work because I, I like to look at it through a humanitarian lens and especially how can veterans, um, through their understanding of the world, um, you know, really get involved. And so my, my job primarily is to mobilize uh, veterans around the country to do human rights work um, and immigration and asylum as part of that. Got it. Mm-hmm. So I know that you all had a recent trip to the southern border, and that's why you're both on the pod plus your your extensive background on this. Before we dive in, I just want to level set with a few quick hits about the migrant crisis. So first, in March of 2021, shortly after becoming the president, 
President Biden tasked Vice President Harris with handling the border crisis. Then we're going to fast forward to present day. This past weekend, New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced that the city will start evicting 60,000 migrants. In the Miami Herald, there was an editorial, and I'm bringing this up because if you watch the last Republican presidential debate, there was a conversation about migrants and fentanyl. So the Miami, Miami Herald, which is biggest paper in Miami, had an editorial, and it, and it says, and I quote, most of the fentanyl entering the United States is brought into the country through legal ports of entry, including airports. Most important, most of it is smuggled by U.S. citizens. According to the Cato Institute, which is a Republican think tank, only 0.02% of fentanyl is coming across by undocumented people. Remarkable. And I also want to mention uh, this past this year, in El, in an individual in El Paso murdered 23 migrants by running over them with a vehicle, and others were injured. And I bring that up because we know that there's a tension in this conversation about the migrant crisis. And then House Republicans passed a bill to strip Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas of his salary. And then the last thing that happened, um, our billionaire overlord Elon Musk recently went to Eagle Pass uh, to document the crisis on X, aka Twitter. So I just want to frame a few big things that have happened um, as we start this conversation. So tell us a little bit about your recent trip to the border. Uh, where were you and why did you go? And we'll start with Chris. Sure. Um, so uh, we went down to Tijuana uh, on the southern border, right across the, the way from uh, San Diego. Uh, and uh, we visited a few shelters down there. Um, in my work, I have dealt primarily with the Afghan community uh, as part of the evacuation and was shocked to see a large amount of Afghans who qualify for legal immigration pathways waiting for those pathways to actually come available for them um, in Tijuana. Um, we visited another shelter um, that uh, was really, I think, just tragic. Uh, we saw... Um, Dozens of families uh, living on a concrete floor in um, in, in, in tents uh, under a, a concrete shelter. Um, again, waiting for months for their uh, ability to apply for asylum, uh, which is their legal right to do so. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we were down there, it was just about learning what was happening, documenting it. Um, uh, Amanda will talk about, I think, the the, the demographics that uh, beyond that that we saw, but it. It, it felt like, um, I mean, it is a crisis, but it is not a crisis that America is unprepared to handle. And it's a crisis that America should handle uh, because these people are just trying to come to the United States to access their legal right um, to apply for asylum and other pathways. So, Right. So we went with um, the Truman National Security Project, which we are members of. Um, here in Atlanta. It's a um, national member-based organization um, with chapters all over the country. So we were the group that went to the border, um, to San Diego and Tijuana. We were um, members of chapters all over the country. So it was interesting to come together and hear how um, migration trends are impacting other cities and then to go across the border ourselves and really see, really be on the ground and seeing, going to the shelters, meeting people, and seeing what they're experiencing. Dozens of people who are waiting on the Mexican side of the border 
to exercise their legal right to to petition for asylum here in the United States. And um, many of those, I mean, most of those people have um, have traveled great distances, really dangerous journey. The Venezuelans, which um, particularly saddens me because of the crisis there, the humanitarian crisis there, um, they have traveled by foot from Venezuela into Colombia, from Colombia through the Darien Gap, which is the small piece of land that connects Colombia and Panama, up through Central America, up through Mexico to arrive at the border and then wait months. Right now, the waiting time is what we heard four to six months to get an appointment with Customs Border Patrol on the CBP-1 app, which it's called. We talked about that on a previous pod. Okay, good. So your listeners understand what that means because <laughs> um, it's confusing for a lot of people and, and especially to the migrants themselves. It's very confusing. Um, they'll wait four to six months right now to get an appointment in which they can make their claim for asylum, um, which is under U.S. law legal. And we have a legal obligation to uphold um, you know, U.S. law. Um, right now, they're waiting in really poor conditions on the Mexican side of the border. Um, but thankfully, there are um, a number of really amazing people on, on both sides we met on both sides of the border with amazing people who are helping to shelter and support these um, these migrants who are just coming here to, you know, they're, they're coming from difficult circumstances and they're, you know, they're, they're in fear of persecution at home and that's why they have arrived here. You know, I remember watching Fox News during the Trump presidency, and there was conversations about these caravans of migrants. And the perception is that these are people who just want to come to America, not necessarily that something is wrong. They're just hell-bent on getting here no matter what, even if they're going to break the rules. So can you help people understand the difference between why someone is seeking asylum and then why someone might be coming in just because they want to come to America? Sure. So, you know, the idea that someone is going to walk, what, the 1800 miles uh, across Central America to come to the United States just because they, you know, want to earn a couple more bucks in their uh, in their bank account is just is is flat out wrong. Um, you know, these people are coming here uh, to apply for asylum. And in order to qualify for asylum, you have to have a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, and persecution from the government. There are lots of different, um, uh, I think, you know, ways that that folks can prove that. Um, what we have found is that one out of every two per, uh, people who come uh, to the United States and apply for asylum are found eligible for this. So 50% of these people on asylum alone. Now that's not counting other pathways that they have. You know, the Afghans, for example, have a pathway called the Special Immigrant Visa Program, which is specifically designed for um, those who fall alongside American soldiers. So, um, you know, what we what we see, what we saw with those quote unquote caravans, um, and the Republicans de- calling this an invasion, and this invasion rhetoric is still going on, um, is they're they're totally ignoring the circumstances of, the, of these people, and they're and the Republican t- kind of talking point is ignoring U.S. law. So, what would you say are the root causes? I mean, you've mentioned you know issues happening in their home country. Are there other root causes to the migrant crisis? 
Well, um, I can address in the case of Latin America, um, particularly right now, the greatest humanitarian crisis in our hemisphere is the situation of Venezuela. Um, they have seen an outflow of 7 million people. Like, think about that. 7 million people have just, left Venezuela since 2014. Just to give folks context, the metro Atlanta region is about that. or less than that, actually. I think it's about 3 or 4 million. Yeah. I mean, like, New York City is, what, 8 million? I mean, it's like a crazy, staggering number of people who have fled Venezuela um, as a result of the political and economic crisis in that country. and. Um, and the greatest outflows right now are directly related to sanctions that we put in place on Venezuela in 2019 during the Trump administration. There was a push at that time to, um, to really to topple the government and by really putting the screws to the Maduro government in Venezuela and so we instituted, we, when I say we, it's the U.S. government, which I was a part of, so I tend to say we, and I, <laughs> but it's the U.S. government um, instituted broad-based blanket economic sanctions on Venezuela, um, in particular on the oil sector, which is the bloodline of Venezuela. And um, as a result, we have seen that economy and that political um, crisis deepen greatly in that time. So for me as a Venezuela watcher for a very long time, it is no surprise that we now have, I think, 2,000 Venezuelans a week arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, U.S. sanctions didn't cause the degradation of their economy. I mean, the Maduro and before then the Chavez administration, I mean, grossly mismanaged. Don't get me wrong, Saba. Like, there's problem, there are problems on the ground for sure. And terrible human rights abuses by that government, yes. Um, but our own policies, our own foreign policy, has contributed to the exodus, and that to me is a disconnect that we that we need to understand that our foreign policy decisions end up having domestic implications that we need to be aware of. So that's the case of Venezuela, and a lot of the um, migrants who are coming out of Ecuador and um, Central America, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras. They are fleeing um, gang violence and political persecution in those countries as well. So these, these folks who are making this really dangerous journey, they're looking, for, um, they're looking for asylum because they are persecuted in their own home countries. Now, I, I believe there's more that we can do from a foreign policy perspective, and I think that's what Vice President Harris was really tasked to address was what could we do to help build support and to address the root causes of migration in Central America. Um, I think that was the idea. Honestly, Saba, I don't know how successful, um, obviously the numbers show that maybe they're not so successful. Well, real real quick that. on those Venezuela numbers, what we know is the vast, vast, vast majority of them are housed in countries other than the United States. So out, yes, outflows of seven you. and a half million or so. Yeah, most are going, are in Colombia mm -hmm. and Brazil. Peru, Ecuador. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, that is a very good point. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, and then other countries, uh, I think I've mentioned Afghanistan, obviously the Taliban uh, and their persecution of women and ethnic minorities. Um, you look at, at Russians, we saw Russians in, um, or Ukrainians in, uh, in, in some of the shelters there um, as a result of the war there. Um, you know, you can look at, at Haiti, you've had really horrible um, uh, human rights abuses there as a result of a lack of government. So at, at the end of the day, we know that the U.S. is not going to be able to handle everybody, um, which is why we need a holistic system and asylum as part of that. Um, and we also need to look at refugee processing centers. And we could talk a little bit about, about that more to kind of help the the, the world community uh, absorb um, the, the needs of uh, of the many. You mentioned Ukraine, and it made me think about um, there's this rapper named Plies who is like very famous on Instagram. And he posted a video, I don't know, maybe a week or so ago, and it was about Ukraine. And he said, it seems, the gist was, it seems to me that it'd be cheaper to just bring Ukrainians here than it would be to fund a war. Well, I would say Ukrainians don't want to leave their home. Um, they don't want to be here. Yeah. Uh, and we're seeing that through, um, to a certain extent, through the humanitarian parole program the Biden administration created for Ukrainians. We do, we have seen people go back. Um, on the funding itself, I think there's this misconception, you know, billions of dollars going to Ukraine that we're somehow loading 20s on, you know, stacks of $20 bills on, onto planes and flying it over. You know, that's going in the form of, of vehicles, of, 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 a, of military equipment, equipment, military equipment. Um, so my perspective as a domestic, as a human rights advocate, I would more than happy to see that equipment go to defend democracy overseas and be used on the streets against communities here in the United States. And then what do you say to someone who's like, well, USAID is also giving millions of dollars to Ukraine. Yeah. Right. Through education, resources, uh, supporting entrepreneurs there, things of that sort. Yeah. Well, there is a yes and, right? It's, it's not an either or. We should be funding domestic priorities as well. So I want to make that very clear. We need to be investing in uh, and people here in the United States in healthcare and education and, and uh, anti-poverty initiatives and all sorts of different domestic priorities that we are currently not. Um, the foreign policy, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this if you're a little more, um, if you're willing, but it, we benefit by having democratic countries across the world. Um, we look at some of our greatest partners in, in, in the world right now, Japan, Germany, um, Korea. These are uh, these are, are countries that benefited from our investment into re rebuilding them after major conflicts that we started. Um, we can look at, the, at Vietnam, for example, which is a conflict that we frankly lost, um, but we've invested resources and money into that economy helps our economy here. So there's a there's a give and take, I think, that um, that we would benefit. I don't know if you want to add anything yeah. to that. No, I think I would only add that there's a mis there's been a, for, for a very long time a misconception in the United States that we spend millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on mm -hmm. U.S. assistance. It's actually such a very low, it's a small amount. And I think that the dividends that we reap from that investment and our allies and our um, other democracies around the world, as Chris was mentioning, I think that actually enhances our national security and that we're strengthening those economies and those um, political economies and those civil societies and the people of these countries, that that actually enhances our national security to do that. And that's actually a lot less expensive to the American people to invest in, in like USAID programs that you mentioned than it is to, um, you know, I'm to be a, to, 
to, you know, addressing conflict rather. Mm -hmm. What is the role of corporations? And I asked this because I was, when I was researching for this, I found a February 22, February of 2023 New York Times article that said 10 companies, including Nestle and Target, said they would collectively spend almost a billion dollars on projects in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And the idea there was to support farmers to create jobs so that people had resources and jobs at their home, like in their home countries rather than coming to the U.S. Do you think there's a role for multinational companies to be doing things like that in tandem with the U.S. government? Um, I would say yes. I mean, it. yes and carefully, <laughs> I guess is the response. Um we have a long history yes. of um, U.S. corporations in Central America exploiting Central American labor Such and as the land. banana company? <laughs> yes, United Fruit Company. Um, and it's not a happy history, actually. Um, and it, we, have, um, we have a history of interfering in their politics and in their economy. And so... Um, so I think that we can do it, yes, but it needs to be done carefully and with a cultural sensitivity. Um, and, you know, I don't, I've never been one to support just going into countries and saying, like, this is what you should do. Like, you, we need to be working with those governments and with those people on the ground to understand their needs and to address them in a way that they want addressed, um, not just how we as Americans think they should be addressed. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. And, um, you know, from a, 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 my personal experience in, in Northern Ireland, one of the things that ended that conflict was investment in the economic infrastructure of that of that country. Um, it, cre it created an opportunity for people who might not be willing to engage in uh, in, in partisan uh, conflict to actually go out and earn a living and, 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 and you know, provide for the families that way. But um, yeah, we don't want to follow the United Fruit Company's uh, example, for sure. All right. Um, last week we talked about Eric Adams, Governor or Mayor Eric Adams in New York, um, and I just mentioned him again in the intro. Yeah. He is one of um, a number of Democratic mayors across the country who have said the Biden administration is not doing its job around this migrant crisis. If you were advising a Democratic mayor, whether it's Chicago, New York, Denver, what would you be saying to them? What do you think they should be paying attention to? Well, I think um, Mayor Adams is his rhetoric is dangerous. Frankly, it's dangerous to the migrants, um, and uh, we've seen um, I don't want to call them riots, but demonstrations in front of shelters in New York City, uh, Staten Island. There was there was one I think last month that it, it's really really shocking, and and this rhetoric kind of eggs that on. Um, what I would advise him to do is do what some 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 cities across the country have been doing, which is taking resources. And uh, and helping find uh, find suitable uh, homes uh, for for those migrants either in their communities or in the, in the state more broadly or region. Um, we know there's an affordability crisis in New York and, and as there is across the country, so it doesn't make sense to you know take up valuable housing stock um, where uh, you know. In, in a city where you're going to have to invest lots of money to, to, to house those folks. But these people know where they want to go, right? They know where their families are. They know where their communities of support are. So we need to uh, help them get there. Um, and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to evict them. Where are they going to go, right? They're going to become a problem somewhere else. Right. I, I also find it 
really um, just deeply saddening for the mayor of New York City, where I lived for a time. Um, it's a city of immigrants, of immigrant communities, rich and vibrant, you know, cultural um, heritage in New York City. The people go to New York City because there's family connections and because there are um, because there are so many disparate communities, um, immigrant communities. And so I find it really saddening that he would, that he would almost demonize the migrants. And I, I don't understand where that's coming from. I think, um, I think that if I were advising him, I would, um, emphasize that taking care of those who come to our cities, migrants who are looking for a better opportunity and looking for a political asylum, that that is part of our heritage, that is in keeping with our values. And it's also strengthening our national security. We are actually better off um, when we are looking out for those who are coming to our to our country and to our shores. Like And deepening those connections actually, I think, enhances national security. I know a lot of people don't understand that connection, but I think it, there is a strong um, argument to be made that we are um, we are stronger as a country when we live up to our values and we um, and we um, you know take care of this situation on the border and the situation in our cities with compassion. Yeah, I mean, I think about Atlanta. Remarkably. There haven't, you know, these are the migrants who are coming into Denver and New York City and some of these other cities are in part are being sent there by Republican governors, mm -hmm. right? Surprisingly, it hasn't happened in Atlanta. But, I mean, if 10,000, 15,000 migrants showed up in Atlanta overnight or in a matter of, you know, a few weeks, what would a Mayor Andre Dickens do when we already have an affordable housing crisis in the city. We already have a long 20-something thousand people waiting list for affordable units through the Atlanta Housing Authority. So what do you do? So I think what you hit on was the cruelty of this program, right? That, that you have uh, governors like Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott that are using the lives of migrants uh, to create political pain for uh, blue mayors and blue states. Um, and I think if if we really wanted to help people resettle across the country equitably, um, I think the civil society can figure that out. Uh, they just need a head, heads up. But what's happening right now, and San Diego saw this, CBP is just dumping hundreds of people um, into neighborhoods without any warning. And so that causes chaos. And it, it, it gives this appearance that the communities are ill-prepared to help these folks. Um, when that is not the case, when civil society is given is given notice and can prepare and can find housing or find find um, uh, people to help support um, these folks when they arrive, you know they're going to succeed and everyone's going to be better off for it. I would agree. I think um, I, I think the stunt that I mean because it is it's a political stunt that Abbott and DeSantis have have pulled in sending migrants. I mean there I think the flight that went to Martha's Vineyard. Well, I think they were all Venezuelans, or the majority were Venezuelan nationals, um, again, here to claim political asylum. Um, you know, I just, it is very cruel to exploit people who, who are at their most vulnerable. And um, and it doesn't do any good to, to, to be, like, dropping people off without notice, without the ability to 
to prepare. And, and as Chris said, there are civil society, there are tons of NGOs and nonprofits that can work with hand in hand with, with city governments to make accommodations and to, to, to figure it out. And I, I know that, that Mayor Adams is probably very frustrated, right? And I, I understand that piece and I'm sure Mayor Dickens would be too. But I think that there are um, there are ways to to deal with it with notice. And actually, there are there have been migrants who are arriving in Atlanta, not in those same numbers, but um, the Office of International um, what is it International and Immigration Affairs within Mayor Dickens' office. So like Vanessa Ibarra and Paulina Guzman, I'm sure you know them. They um, they are working on with those migrants who are arriving in Atlanta. There are some many who are who come. Um, also, like who will take flight, they'll come at the border and then they'll take flights through. And so some have been coming through the Atlanta airport that we that then onto their final destinations um, as they await proceedings. Let me emphasize that. These are folks who are here who are awaiting their legal immigration proceedings, um, which takes time. And they're going on to their destinations where they like have family members. And so like Santiago at the Latin American Association here in Atlanta, he's been working with a lot of um, new, new arrivals as well. So we haven't seen this, the numbers like other cities, but we have um, Atlanta is impacted as well. So there's an election next year. I don't know if you've heard about it. <laughs> really? <laughs> and it looks like it's going to be a rematch of Trump versus Biden. Um, unless, you know, something happens. <laughs> I can't, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately, on that. What would you say, in, in your opinion, and what you've seen are the key differences between Trump's approach to this challenge versus Biden's approach? Do you want to go? <laughs> I'll go, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I think Trump's approach um, I mean, I talked about the sanctions in Venezuela. Um, so what I view the, the MAGA approach to uh, immigration is, is pull up the gates and make everything as painful for people as possible so that they go somewhere else and then it's someone else's problem. Um, we saw this uh, in the border policy uh, during COVID and actually before COVID, there was Remain in Mexico um, where we illegally removed asylum seekers to, to Mexico to um uh, and Human Rights First documented, I think, over 10,000 instances of violent assault on migrants um, as a result of that policy, um, including, you know, ass assault, rape, murder. Um, and you, so that's there, there's the border policy, the, the Trump approach to the refugee program, which is different than asylum. I know this gets kind of wonky. <laughs> Uh, it was to to cut the program uh, by ninety five percent and totally decimate it. And so, um, because the refugee policy, because the refugee program uh, needs funding on a per person basis, meaning for every one refugee that comes in, a refugee resettlement agency gets X amount of dollars to house them. By trying to build that back up after the Trump administration, we weren't able to. We're not able to deal with this crisis right now. So Trump's policy is um, gates and moats and alligators, um, and the Biden administration is really trying to think creatively about how to take on our legal obligation to our allies and uh, and to allow folks to apply for refugee and asylum, um, but also building coalitions across the world to help f solve this process. This 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 problem. Um, 
where we looked at the Afghanistan crisis, you know, we, we took in 70,000 uh, uh, refugees from Afghanistan, but the, uh, the Biden administration also helped resettle tens of thousands of folks elsewhere and ensuring that everyone, you know, took their fair share. But wasn't there also some pushback on Biden that folks felt he was essentially doing very similar to what Trump did um, on immigration policy? Yeah, I mean, the, look, the Biden administration is not perfect. I don't mean to paint this this rosy picture. Um, I think if if I had my my way about it, though, I would rather have a Biden administration, even with the problems that they have. Um, they have initiated the, an asylum ban, which um, you know it mimics a lot of Trump policies. Um, but at least we can work with them. At least we can try to to, to move this along. Um, we couldn't do anything uh, during the Trump era. Any thoughts, Amanda? I mean, I would say that, you know, yes, it's not perfect. And um, there are some that say we have a perception problem under the Biden administration in terms of migrants feeling like the doors are open because the Trump during the Trump four years Trump very explicitly said, do not come. Yeah. I mean, and he, his, you know, what did you call it? Moats and alligators approach. (laughs) But like the, you know, build the wall and um, the terrible denigrating terms he used to describe Mexican nationals, um, that sort of rhetoric, um, I think the contrast then as Biden comes into office, he, um, there's a perception that that maybe there it's easier to arrive in the U.S. now under Biden. And that um, is not necessarily the case because there's a legal process to claim asylum and there's, you know, legal proceedings and legal pathways, as Chris has, has noted. Um, but I do think that that the Biden administration needs to do more to work with other countries to get the messaging out that this is a dangerous passage, that the, it is not just the gates are open and like, come on in. It isn't that, like, that's not the situation, but but it's not the Trump era either. And I, mm-hmm. I know that's a really, that's a fine line. I don't know where the balance is there, but um, but I think we need to find it. Well, we were talking about earlier people just doing the bare minimum, right? And, right. and like all Biden is doing is the bare minimum of letting people come to the border to access their legal right. And he's not even doing that very well. Um, so, you know, we would love to see 200,000 refugees enter, admitted into, the, into this country and refugees are different than asylum seekers. Um, we're not going to get we're not going to get a quarter of that this year. So, Amanda, you mentioned perception. It made me think about media. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So what do you to what extent is the media helping people understand this crisis or making it seem like there's, you know, the borders being flooded and your communities are being invaded? Oh, I think, the, I mean, the media is controlled. And by media, crazy. I mean mainstream media. Yeah, mainstream media. Yeah. No, I mean, a classic example is um, like, you know, I had. My dad asked, oh, you're going to go to New York? Why would you go to New York? Like, that's overrun by migrants right now. And I'm like, what are you watching? Like, this is the Fox News narrative, I believe. Many of the New York Times. I mean, I've seen, you know, video where you see migrants sleeping on the street. Sure. I mean, right? yes. And- yeah. Well, I think the fear tactics, though, I guess, is maybe more of what I think is like I think of as like the Fox News media. But yes, like focusing on um, 
I mean, you you mentioned Saba, the conflation of fentanyl and mi- migrants, which is that's just like that's not happening, but it's fear tactics that are then um, perpetuated on on media because that gets eyeballs. Let's be honest about it. Like, what are people going to listen to and what are people going to click on? It's like these like fear headlines, and I don't think that's helping to understand the real issues. Um, I know that everybody can't go on a trip like we did to go to the border and really see with our own eyes and actually talk to people um, and get a greater understanding from, you know, from those who are working on the border and working with migrants to really understand the situation. I I know that people can't do that, but I, I would encourage people to go deeper than those headlines and to really try to understand uh, what are our legal obligations, what are our moral obligations. Um, and, and, you know, just to try to get a greater understanding of the situation beyond the headlines. I also think that other than immigration, for the most part, the Biden administration is rather boring. Um, <laughs> I mean, they keep the lights on. They, they do basic things. I mean, there's a lot more they can do domestically. Um, but uh, what the media understands is that immigration is a hot topic that Republicans are going to complain about. And I remember, I think it was the day or the weekend after uh, Biden was inaugurated. CNN had a panel in front of a border wall on uh, uh, the uh, the Texas-Mexican border. And I remember thinking, like, he's, <laughs> he's not even got his team ready yet. And all of a sudden, you, you know, it, it it set the tone. It, it made it very clear to me that the media was going to – they're the thing they were going to dig in on Biden was um, immigration. And um, there's nothing that he can do that's going to um, gonna fix that. Uh I mean, again, not to let him off the hook. I'm a refugee advocate. He's got a long way to go, but it's it, he. This is just something that I think the media has their teeth into. I can I also mention that I think, um, in terms of different out media outlets, there is a racist, xenophobic mm-hmm. component to a lot of this, and the whole like sort of make America great again is like hearkening back to a time I don't even know when, but, um, and that's what they're stirring up is like this, I think this like xenophobia of those who are like the othering of migrants as they're coming over. Um, and this fear tactics, like of saying, oh, they're taking our jobs or they're taking our culture or whatever the argument that they're trying to, um, that resonates with some people, unfortunately, but I don't think that, um, and I, I think the media, praise on that too because again it gets eyeballs uh, uh, well speaking of media um i think definitions help too right and we heard even in this conversation i've heard different uh, terms right so for the viewers for the people that's listening what's the difference between an illegal immigrant right migrant uh refugee and asylum seeker because over the years, media has has been like illegal immigrants, right? Um, and then I've heard refugees from time to time, but I've also heard Americans referred to as refugees as well, like especially like during Katrina and stuff. So, like, what are those terms? What because you are very clear on this, like these people coming over aren't quote unquote illegal immigrants; they're clearly seeking asylum. Mm-hmm. 
how to just break that down. Yeah, break yeah that down that's a really word. good question, yeah. and there's a lot of misperception around that. Chris, you are really <laughs> good for, at explaining it. Because, because you know the media also shows like the the ice is like kicking the yeah. door, like oh you're sure. illegal, give me you know yeah. you're out of here with deported people. So like sure, and yeah. language matters too, yeah. right? right? Yeah. And how mm-hmm. we talk about this, yeah. absolutely. You know when we talk about when the media talks about illegal immigrants, there that is a bucket term for anyone that crosses the border uh, in between ports of entry. Um, and a port of entry is a an airport or a a border crossing. So people and there's lots of reasons why people would want to cross without uh, between between ports of entry. Um, it might be their only way to get across. We saw at the San Ysidro um, uh, crossing in Tijuana a mile long uh, uh, line to cross into the United States, or at least to present themselves to a border guard. So it's a bucket term. Uh, it doesn't really capture the what's actually happening. Um, it just means that they've crossed irregularly without some sort of documentation. Now, uh, asylum seeker is someone who has a credible fear of persecution, um, which means that either their government or some other, you know, state or non-state actor is um, going to uh, murder them. We see this happening a lot. Um, You know, gangs will come to uh, a business, for example, and shake down a business and um, the the owner cannot pay and so needs to flee. And so that they have a credible fear of persecution in their home country. They come to the United States. They are then at the border of Mexico that is run by cartels. And we see, we documented, again, 10,000 uh, cases of of, uh, of of assault and abuse of migrants um, after, Mexico, uh, after people returned to Mexico. Um, that is because uh, the state of, uh, of uh, Mexico, let me rephrase that, some Mexican officials are working with cartels to actively harm and abuse these migrants. I, I don't mean to cut sure. you off. So yep. what you're saying right now is at the border, not only on the U.S. side do we have like border patrol. Right. On the Mexican side, the government, there are some like shady characters working with actual gangs. And those gangs are either stopping you from coming or basically... Uh, harming you when you come back over for even leaving right trying to leave exactly so you get to the border after crossing this horrific journey through the through central america through the darien as amanda said and then you're faced with mile-long lines to get through the border well if i feel like i have a re- i have a family right i have a two-year-old son a nine-year-old daughter if if i was forced to wait in a camp uh or uh at, at a border crossing um, and this, this, these gangs and state actors were were persecuting me there. Of course, I would cross irregularly. Of course, I would go across if I feel like I had a credible fear of persecution in my home country, and I knew that U.S. law would recognize that. I absolutely would do that. And so, I think, um, you know, when we talk about illegals, it's just it's this blanket statement and makes them feel like Amanda said an, an, a, the other non-human um, refugees is a little bit different. And I could talk a little bit about that later on, but I don't, I know I've been talking a lot, so. No, you're good. <laughs> clear, clear, clear. I appreciate All right. It. Were you going to say something? Well, I don't you don't have to. You just... Well, I will say that um, from when I worked at state department and when we were, we talked a lot, a lot about migrants. That was like, a, I mean, this is a, a major topic. Um, there, there is a difference between those who are here seeking asylum and those who are here who are economic migrants, right? So those people who are coming because of, out of a fear of persecution, political persecution. And when we talk about the gangs, often in Latin America, the gangs are vigilante groups that are associated with the state, so with the government, right? Um, I mean, not all. Some are part of organized crime, but it's it's very complicated, right? 
Um, but these are asylum seekers. They are here um, seeking asylum. They have well-founded fear of political persecution at home, okay? And then you've got those who are who are economic migrants who are looking for jobs, economic opportunity. Um, often these folks don't meet the threshold of political asylum. As and Chris is saying, these are probably the 50% who claim maybe claim political asylum, but don't meet that threshold or don't have evidence of it. And they're looking for maybe more. They're here for jobs. So, so it's complicated. Be, so would those be the quote unquote illegal immigrants, like those 50% that didn't get the asylum, but are staying yeah. to work? Yes. Qu there are some people. Yes. I would say those, are, I mean, technically anyone who doesn't have documents, and, right? And They've like, they're now in, in the United States. Maybe they haven't showed up for their their immigration proceedings either. Okay, that so, happens. It so, does. So then undocumented, right? That's basically the same thing. And the reason why I'm saying this, right, because like we talked about off camera, like we, like the the whole voting thing, and when, right, yeah. And so when you use the term illegal immigrants, right, mm -hmm. automatically that makes a person feel like, well, then that sounds like they're breaking laws, mm -hmm. and we know yeah. how much of a police state America feels like. So that if I'm an American citizen, and I'm like, well what laws can be broken and cannot be broken. So I appreciate you guys kind of like determining, like, let me know, like, okay, it's more so undocumented and it's illegal because of that term, not necessarily just. Yeah. Right. They're not breaking. I mean, yeah, it's not criminal not there. Cr yeah. Yes. It's a misdemeanor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and some, I mean, there are also, there yeah. are people who, um, who overstay their visas, for example. Yeah, I mean, Maybe I, they got- I've worked with some of those people. Before. Right, they've, they've legally obtained a US visa from an embassy or consulate abroad, and then they've come to the United States on a visa that they've received, and then they overstay their visa. Now they are here undocumented. Once you've, and that, and that happens. And there are, besides just asylum, there are lots of other, what we call pathways, you know, mm -hmm. ways that people can stay in the United States. Um, I mentioned special immigrant visa, which is really designed for uh, American allies in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. Um, there's different type of priority refugee processing and a refugee, there are different categories of who qualifies for refugee. It's not just persecution, right? There are things that, you know, might have happened in one's home country, um, you know, natural disaster, there's a movement to make climate, uh, uh, to be a category for refugee. Um, it could be, you know, you're part of a, a persecuted group, um, for example. Um, so, you know, that 50%, yes, there are economic migrants in there for sure, but it's not, it's not black and white. Right. What do you foresee as the future of this crisis? Do you anticipate that things are going to settle down or do you think it's just going to get even worse just kind of looking at what's happening politically across the globe? My sense is that as um, that we are not going to see migrant flows um, decrease, decrease. Um, for a couple of factors, I would say. Um, in the shorter term, I think in terms of looking at the Western Hemisphere and Latin America in particular, as China's economy declines or slows, I guess I should say, um, as it is, um, China is a major has been a consumer of commodities from Latin America. So as they are consuming fewer commodities from Latin America, that's less money in Latin America, that's less opportunity, where we are going to see more migrants coming. Um, so that's one reason in the shorter term. In the longer term, Saba, we have some, as Chris just touched on, we're going to have 
across the globe, many more migrants who are climate migrants. And that's going to be something that we all need to address. Um, you're We're going gonna to have see, that just domestically. Yes, just domestically. Exactly. I mean, Europe is facing a migrant crisis, if you want to use the terminology as well. And a lot of um, a lot of the um, migration trends that we see are a result of climate. Now, it's complicated because you say, oh, well, it's not just like one storm and then someone comes. Like if you look at the crisis and the conflict in Syria, for example, the conflict began after a drought and that created many more people from the rural communities coming into the cities, right? And then there was, I mean, just like it goes from one step to the next, you have a huge outflow of people. So I just think that we are going to see a lot more climate-related conflict that re that leads to climate migration. I think that happened in Atlanta uh, during Katrina. It did. Yes. When, when a lot of yes. people from New Orleans, I was in high school at the time, and it's just yes, <laughs> a lot right. of people. Right. Yes. Where that. did y'all come from? And then it becomes a yep. conflict because your way of doing things and my way of doing things don't not, match up. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was here first, but you have no place to go. And right. It becomes a, because nobody laid it out. Right. Like he said civilly, like, okay, this is what we'll do. This, hey, y'all, there's going to be a group of kids coming next week, not just you come to class and, oh, right. who are all these people? Right. Right. So it's yeah, a great I, yeah, example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I think domestically, uh, it's going to get worse because our solutions have become so narrowly focused on, uh, like Trump has moved the Overton window, right? And he's basically the, the alligators and moats. I mean, he did it again, right? Like he's like, this is the only way you can solve this problem is by not letting anybody in. So you've got this whole group of people who think that and the Republicans pass HB2 or are trying to get past HB2, um, which is a, a, a quote unquote border bill that restricts access to asylum, that uh, limits the number of asylum, seek, uh, asylum officers, so US agents who would be able to um, help adjudicate some of these claims and make things move faster. And uh, if that bill becomes law or some other type of compromise that reduces people's access to legal immigration pathways, um, the people are still going to come uh, and they're just going to destabilize, um, you know, border communities even more. Uh, so, you know, domestically, we need to get um, more resources to to these to these kind of um, different pathways and help people resettle either here in the United States or find places for them. That sounds like it's going to be an intense few years, uh, regardless of who ends up being president in 2024. Yeah. Um, it's, right, it's definitely. Not, it's not I mean, going I, away. No, it's not. And I think we need to, um, I'd like to see that we change the narrative on it too and see what are the benefits of, of you know, beautifully vibrant, dynamic, hardworking immigrant communities here in the United States. I mean, you know, we, we do have a narrative of, a, you know, the United States is built on immigrants. Um, right. Or, you know, so can we, if we could get back to that understanding and, and start to see us as stronger as a nation, um, you know, upholding our moral and our legal obligations um, and seeing that as part of our national security, what strengthens us as a people, I think that we can address this and it doesn't have to be a crisis. It can actually be an opportunity. Um, and I'd like to start to see, I'd love for us to start to see that as an opportunity. I get the sense American companies see it as an opportunity, right? I mean, we've talked on the pod before about just what's happening in the labor movement across the country, but then also that child labor is increasing 
in child labor within migrant communities, yeah. right? And so th there's a lot of intricate moving parts in this entire sure. conversation, and it's yeah. it's tricky. Yeah, because like I, I hear it, right? So what about building like advocates within the American people too? Like, because um, a lot of times the contingency is, well, you have these, uh, well, what would we call them now? Undocumented people, because the asylum seekers they'll have a place, but the undocumented people are kind of encroaching on some of the homeless people, right? Mm -hmm. And then the city comes up with fifty million dollars for undocumented people. How can we, you know, maybe split some of that and get it to the homeless, and then those homeless people can become advocates for, you know, because it's almost like we're running out of space. Or even here in Atlanta, like, I know we closed a lot of shelters down just mm -hmm. for the homeless, right? So right. if we do get an influx of, yeah. you know, immigrants coming in, then, I mean, do, can we open the shelters back? You right. Know, do we, it, so, like, is there a pathway for, like, some advocacy through, like, okay, well, you know, we don't always have to bring them to uh, impoverished communities, right? Why don't we take them, why don't we spread them out across the city? Why don't we take them to, like, the middle of America where there's all this land that's undeveloped, that nobody's there, that, I mean... I, I, the, these people have skills because I've seen the interviews. They, they'll come over. They say, like, sure. "I'm a electrician. I'm a carpenter. Sure. They can build their oh, own yeah. community." So why, you know, right? Like, you have yeah. you have doctors yeah. and engineers who are in who are Venezuelan nationals who are crossing the border. I mean, these are yeah. high. I mean, many well, you, you highly flown, skilled, you, you very industrial, and look down. There's like nothing. Yeah, like nothing. Yeah. Like people could be yeah. here. You know what? You know, is there. I think it's important that um, uh, migrants are able to have freedom of movement and go where their communities of support are. Um, and those communities of support, if if they're able to get there, will help them and find housing and jobs and things like that. I was actually just on a phone call this morning at eight o'clock this morning with a, a friend of mine. I'm from Rochester, New York, originally, and we have a family home up there. And she was desperately trying to find a, a place for uh, an Afghan family of five. Um, who had been, you know, attacked on the street um, through some of this conflict of local communities and a new migrant. And, you know, where do we now, where do we send them? So, you know, like this happens uh, across the country, um, but it's about allowing migrants, empowering both migrants to choose where they want to live and giving communities the resources that they need to house everybody. And this is not an immigration thing, I'm going to say, but it's something I really believe. We don't tax people, we don't tax the wealthy enough to fund the government and to fund these resources. So we need to really um, in, in, in invest in our domestic, uh, um, I guess, uh, capital infrastructure where, um, where where this money can be spread out to, you know, not a, a migrants or domestic needs, but a, a, a both and. Right, it shouldn't be an either or. Mm -hmm. And we have moral obligations to our own American mm -hmm. See, when you talk well. like that, that makes me want to play the game, right? That sounds like a solution, right? You know? There we go. What are some books or resources that folks should read, pick up, pay attention to if they want to better understand this and kind of learn more? Yeah. Um, well, I thank you for asking, Saba. I came <laughs> with a, a little a plug, book, a book recommendation. Um, so this book is called Solito, which means alone. Um, or little, little alone. It's about a migrant. It's by Javier Samora. He, um, a migrant, um, a, a, a minor. He was nine years old and he made the dangerous trek up Central America and Mexico to the border. Um, and it's just a really, really interesting, tough read about, about what 
the um, unaccompanied minors are enduring on that on that journey. So I think it's a really it's a really good book that I recommend. And just to have a little bit more empathy for what a lot of these um, the migrants um, who are coming to our country what they've endured. Um, and if people want um, some wonky fact sheets, um, my organization, humanrightsfirst.org, uh, has all sorts of information and analysis of what's happening at the border. Um, and I would just encourage folks to keep a critical eye out uh, to media. To the media, um, some media is doing a really good job at this. The New York Times had, you know, has had some bad coverage, but they've also done some really good cataloging of what the journey is actually like for migrants uh, as well. Great. Any. Any final thoughts, words, anything that you're like, oh, man, I wish you'd asked me X? Um, no, this is great. I'm really appreciative. And uh, I think the the people who want to solve this, this immigration crisis um, are losing the narrative, right? The people who actually want to ensure that people are safe and secure uh, and have a place to go, um, are being drowned out by folks who just want to sow fear and discord and want to ignore the problem. So I'm glad we did this. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for having us. I think it's such an important issue and we're going to need to keep talking about it yeah. and we're going to need to find solutions and work together. And it's not something that's going to be solved overnight, but I feel really strongly that we're stronger um, if we work together to figure it out and, um, again, see the opportunity here and not just the risks. All right. Amanda, Chris, thank you both. Great. Thanks thank for having you. us. Thanks thank so you. much, both of you. It's great. <laughs>